0: Grace to you and peace from the God who is our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, amen. The text for our consideration this morning is the first two verses of our Old Testament lesson from Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. This is God's Word. For what it's worth, the Big Ten Conference and our scripture, le- scripture lesson with the Ten Commandments have something in common. For right now, currently, the Big Ten Conference has how many teams? Fourteen. Fourteen. And the text of the Ten Commandments before us has 14 commands. Now, there are a couple of different ways in which we can deal with this. Systems, if you will, for numbering the commandments because the Bible itself doesn't anywhere number them. In a subtle way, the NIV text laid out in our service folder reflects the way the Reformed Church counts the Ten Commandments. Between verses 3 through 17, we've got 10 paragraphs. And that's how how they divide them. The Lutheran Church has used a system whereby, well, we treat the commands not to covet as two separate commands and the first commandment as one single command, whereas the Reformed do a separation there. But there's one other system that's worth considering, and, and that is the, the system followed by, by the rabbis. One of the things they recognized is where the Bible says 10 it doesn't say commands. It says ten words. You might think of topics or concepts or ideas. And God spoke all these words. Well, that's, that's the, the word that's, that's at the heart of things. God spoke all these words. And what then is that first word? And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord Your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That first word is important. This first word tells us that what God wants for us is good. And by extension, then, we can also say, that that God, that what he wants from us is good. So this first word tells us that what God wants for us is good. The Ten Commandments, as recorded in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, sets those commands in salvation history God is not instructing the descendants of Abraham how to become his people he is speaking to them as his people chosen redeemed and rescued in Exodus which you heard earlier the command to remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, is is set in the context of the seven days of creation. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, it is set in salvation history, the third commandment, in this way. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm therefore the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day The command to worship on the Sabbath was set into salvation history you know if we approach the Ten Commandments without that first word we might more easily fall into that idea that all too many people have that Christianity is all about rules, about regula- regulations, about obedience and performance. That a Christian is somebody who's a rule keeper. But the foundation here is, is not obedience, but redemption. Let's remember this decisive. Moment in Israel's rescue from slavery in Egypt. That is the plague that fell upon the firstborn. The Israelites had lived through nine plagues, well, some that affected them directly, some that affected only the Egyptians, but they had seen nine evidences of the Lord showing his angry on sinners and those who rebelled against him. So then what would it be like to know that the tenth plague is coming, it will come in the middle of the night, it will come in darkness, and all the firstborn males of men and animals will will be destroyed. What would it be like to endure that night as a firstborn son? For somebody who loved a firstborn son, whether brother, father, spouse, son, grandson. What would it be like to hear the grief and the terror spreading through the darkness and coming nearer if God had, had said, Well, when I come and when I see your obedience, I will pass over? Or what if he had said instead, and when I see your faith, your trust in me, then I will pass over? Each in their way would be a frightening prospect because the focus of attention would be on the individual's heart and life. What the Lord said was this When I see the blood, I will pass over. The Israelites were instructed to gather in their homes, in in groups, to, to eat roasted lamb. The lamb had been slaughtered at twilight and drained of its blood. The blood was not in front of them. It wasn't on the table. It wasn't on the plates. It was on the outside of the door frames. Not where they could see it. The promise was, God said, When I see the blood, I will pass over. Shouldn't this shatter Any complacency we might have in approaching God's altar to receive the wine of the Lord's Supper? Shouldn't this get rid of those dismissive thoughts about the sacraments as though they are just symbolic remembrances, symbolic acts of remembrances? And shouldn't they also shatter our our fearful, even despairing thoughts about the weight of of our individual lifetime of guilt. To taste the wine and know that the Lord sees the blood of the Lamb, the Lamb he sent to take away the sin of the world. That changes everything. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of salvation history. That irrevocable gift gives us the confidence that what God wants for me, for you, is good without exception. Take, drink, Jesus says. This is my blood. And when my father sees it, his judgment must pass over, and he most certainly does see it. That salvation history is the foundation for Paul's confidence in our confidence that everything must work for our good. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? We cannot rightly understand the Ten Commandments without understanding the heart of the God who speaks to us So that important first word, the Redeemer God speaking to us, tells us that since what he wants for us is good, what he wants from us from moment to moment must also and certainly is good. Consider what Jesus says about sin in in John's Gospel. A painfully obvious truth that nevertheless we may try to deny. He said everyone who sins is a slave to sin. The very nature of sin means it has an enslaving quality. When we choose to rely on things, that has a way of enslaving us. If you look for safety in a situation by resorting to a lie. Now you've got to produce more lies to protect that that one lie. When we fall into relying on things for happiness and security, thinking they're going to protect us, well, then we have to protect them from everyone who would like to take those things away f- from us. And people find that alcohol and other substances deal with a challenging problem. They, they have a way of dealing with the problem of guilt. They make that feeling at least go away, but once that illusion of protection disappears, very often there's just, well, there's, there's more guilt to struggle with in the picture. And that's true of so many different addictions, whether it's to gambling or shopping or whatever. What C.S. Lewis described as an ever-increasing desire for an ever-diminishing pleasure. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, one of the neat things about what we referred to as the Kuski Catechism. Some of us are old enough to have started out with the brown, the tan, Gauzewitz Catechism, followed by a catechism put together by Professor David Kuski. And one of the neat things about that catechism was that each of the Ten Commandments comes with a little parenthetical underneath the heading. Each one was a reminder that the commandments are designed to protect blessings that he wants you and I to enjoy. The first commandment, to have no other gods, is designed to protect the blessing of God's glory, of of knowing his glory, his power, his majesty, all guided by his love and grace. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord, your God it is meant to protection to protect the blessing that comes from knowing who He is, knowing His name. And that includes not just His meaningful names, which are certainly valuable. It includes also a long list of characteristics: that He is patient, he is compassionate, he is gracious, He is wise, He is loving. He is forgiving. That's precious stuff. What do you have to do to make God forgiving? You can't do it because He already is. That's His name, that's something precious to be treated with, with care. Remember the Sabbath day by by keeping it holy, the the day of, of rest. God strengthens and he restores us through his word. To worship him is to celebrate his worth. And from that comes confidence and joy and strength. Would encourage you to take some time to consider just what blessing comes into our lives when we fight against the desire for things that God has placed beyond our reach. Coveting. Some things God places beyond our reach by command shall not covet your neighbor's wife or worker. Some things He places beyond our reach by our circumstances what happens in a home at christmas time when the child gets the Dudley Dursleys what 27 gifts for this year and not the 28 last year coveting robs us of joy god wants to protect us from that with his command god's commands are for our good but certainly Taking God's commandments seriously as we do can leave us struggling with the burden of the recognition of just in how many ways and how many times we have dishonored our God, damaging good things that he has set, set before us. Now that, that burden becomes all the heavier if we... F- we fall back into thinking of ourselves as, as slaves. Not in Egypt, but slaves in everyday life. What was the mentality of a slave? Well, when Jesus talked about how everyone is a, who sins is a slave to sin, he went on to say, Now a slave has no permanent place within a family. The slave had to really be concerned with what many workers in the workplace have to be concerned with. Have I lived up to the expectations today? And can I do it again tomorrow? The master would only keep a slave around as long as the slave was able to produce labor worth at least as much as what little food or shelter and clothing that they provided for them. So to be a slave was really a frightening and uncertain thing. But Jesus went on to say, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. God's first word to us calls upon us to live not as slaves, but as children. Not in a relationship established on the basis of performance, but it's a matter of family. We shouldn't think of God as observing our lives the the way an Olympic judge would watch a figure skater. Those judges are tasked with looking for and identifying automatic deductions. That kind of pressure and that kind of perspective. A judge would certainly look at a a snowboarder coming down a run with a different perspective than the family that are watching too. Maybe my favorite way, well, definitely my favorite way to get at this is to, to think of a father who sees their child walk for the very first time. You know what that looks like, right? Not a thing of coordinated beauty. What father would react by saying, that's not good enough. Come back when you can do it right. Impossible, right? father would react with, with joy. the stumbles of your day-to-day life as, as a Christian, your Heavenly Father looks upon them with joy. We can say that honestly and accurately and recognize there's something else that goes along with that lovely foundation, and that is the Father who sees that child bobbing and weaving and landing on their bottom and so on, doesn't want their child to walk that way their whole life. So our Heavenly Father. He finds joy in our stumbling efforts to walk with Him. But His goal is that we walk every day more and more like Christ. That's the point of his first word to us, to let us know that what he wants for us is good and beautiful, to be like Christ. And so then also, what he wants from us is good. Amen.